You have put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise. A sound that resonates that all of heaven and earth may worship you. We tread the hills to meet with you, to see your majesty in all that surrounds us. For it speaks and displays the eternal God of ages, creator, author, victor. In love, you established an everlasting covenant with your people, and it's your love that captivates us. As children of the King, we rush in as waves unrestrained, overcome, overwhelmed, that the King crowned in glory and splendor would reach down to place a crown upon our heads. So we raise our banner, the banner we boldly stand under, the banner of Jesus Christ. From dusk to dawn, from age to age, your praise resounds in all the earth. Deliverer, Redeemer, ruler of an everlasting kingdom that cannot be shaken. We trust in the name of Christ Jesus, the only King forever. Welcome to Zion's Redemption Radio. This is Fundamentally Mormon. I'm your host, Mark Lichtenwalter. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. You can find this at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon. And the text will also be posted on my Facebook wall at facebook.com forward slash L-A-Z-U-R-U-S 1977. You can also find the text and the audio to this radio program on iTunes at Fundamentally Mormon and in the different Facebook groups that I am an admin of. Some of those groups are LDS Last Days Prophecy and Gospel Discussions, LDS Gospel Mysteries, Latter-day Unity, and others. You can find the pages that I admin also on my Facebook wall. And if you enjoy this program, please friend request me or follow me and uh, make me one of your close friends. We try to put out as many episodes as we can during the week. But I'm thankful for you to be here today. Let's get right into the reading today. We are going to be reading out of Ogden Kraut's books. You can find his books for free to read online at ogdenkraut.com. That's O-G-D-E-N-K-R-A-U-T.com. That's O-G-D-E-N-K-R-A-U-T.com. And today is... 2021. We'll be continuing on with part two of Catholic uh, chapter. I'm not really sure. Kim, what chapter is this again? Um, it is part two of chapter 11 of Holy Priesthood, volume four. Okay. And of course, it just reset what I was looking at. Go back. <laughs> Brother. Anyway, this is not so, going to be fun, is it? Uh, yeah. Well, expect 
the uh, unexpected. So, yeah. anyway, so uh, we've had an interesting week and a half, I guess. Um, didn't have a babysitter last week. From Saturday to Saturday, I worked seven days and was able to put in 70 hours. Working kind of part-time a little bit, but getting as many hours as I could, watching my one-year-old son when he woke up, and I'm trying to sleep from about 3 a.m. till whenever he woke up. So it was just too much for me to try to do a radio show with everything that was going on. And then, I don't know, I've just been tired this week, too. So um, we decided that since the Doctrine of Christ radio show, or not a podcast, I guess, they do a live stream now. They used to do a Zoom thing, but... <clears throat> Anyway, YouTube Live and Facebook Live, they go on at 8 p.m. on Mondays and Tuesdays, and I love listening to them. And I would love it if they would use my platform to uh, upload uh, their podcast, even though I don't agree with everything that they say, but that's fine. I don't agree with anybody 100%. But um, I think that what they're doing is very beneficial. Anyway, but um, and I could they could use the phone number and the host line and all of that. But anyway, so if they decide to do that, we're going to be Monday through Friday from 8 p.m. until whatever. Um, but if they don't, then I'm just Tuesday or no Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday is probably going to be it for me. Um, and uh, we're going to read either 10 or 20 pages tonight. Uh, So there might be a part three of the Catholics and the Holy Priesthood, um, volume four, which we're talking about polygamy and the history of polygamy. So since I'm driving my truck at this time, Kim is going to read. I'm going to mute myself. And um, well, if I have any uh, comments or anything, then at the end of each page, after the end of the sentence, uh, she'll ask me if I have any questions. Anybody else who has questions, there is a chat room available at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon. And I am monitoring that. I do have the studio open. Also, um, at the end of the reading, if anybody has any questions or comments, the guest call in line is 917 917- Eight eight nine eight eight two seven. That's nine one seven eight eight nine eight eight two seven. And I will bring them into the screening room and ask them their question or comment so that we can make sure we can try to not have a bunch of uh, trolls coming on this airtime and being on this podcast. So anyway, uh, with any without any further ado, I will offer the prayer, and then my wife. Kimberly will read part two of Catholics in Polygamy and the Holy Priesthood, volume four. Is there anything that you wanted to say before we got into it, Kim? Nope. Okay, and then after the prayer, I will mute myself and unless, uh, well, until you get done with the page. I'm not following along with the page. So you'll just have to like when you get to the brackets, 
finish the sentence, and then you can say what page number we're on, and if I have anything to say, or if I don't have anything to say, I'll let you know at that point. But I want to hear what my you first have to say first. I know. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay, I'll offer the dedication, and we'll get into the reading. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We come to thee this day in the name of Jesus Christ. And we ask thee, Father, to accept this time of study and dedication unto thee so we can learn the history of Catholicism and polygamy. We love thee, Father, and we seek to know the truth. And to, in order to know the truth, we know that we have to study things out to the best of our ability. We thank thee for the Holy Spirit, and we ask thee, Father, that thy spirit would guide us as we go through this text and talk about these topics. We dedicate this time unto thee, and we thank thee, Father, for all of our many blessings. So we say these things in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, even Jesus the Christ. Amen. Amen. The Catholics, Part 2 of Chapter 11 of Holy Priesthood, Volume 4, pages 110 to 120. Around the year of 400 AD, restrictions increased for persons who wanted to become members of the priestly offices. Schaff, or Schaff, reports catechumens, or catechisms, tumens, neophytes, persons baptized at the point of death, penitents, Energumens, such as were possessed of a devil, actors, dancers, soldiers, curials, court, state, and municipal offices or officials, slaves, eunuchs, bigamists, and all who led a scandalous life after baptism were debarred from ordination. The frequent team, sorry, I think I developed a Utah um, accent and I can't say that right. The frequenting of taverns and theaters, dancing and gambling, usury or usury, and the pursuit of secular businesses were forbidden to clergymen. That's from the History of the Christian Church, Schaff, uh, Volume 3, page 256. Varying views of who should live celibate lives were maintained by the Greek and Latin churches. Um, quote, in practice of clerical or clerical celibacy, however, the Greek and Latin churches diverged in the 4th century and are to this day divided. The Greek church stopped halfway and limited the injunction of celibacy to the higher clergy, who were accordingly chosen generally from the monasteries or from the ranks of widower uh, presbyters, while the Latin church extended the law to the lower clergy. And at the same time carried forward the hierarchical principle the hierarchical principle to absolute papacy it sets virginity far above marriage and regards marriage only in its aspect of negative utility in the single marriage of a priest it sees in a measure a necessary oh my goodness i'm not going to be able to read well tonight am i a necessary evil at best, only a conditional good, a wholesome concession to the flesh for the 
prevention of immorality and requires of its highest office bearers total abstinence from all matrimonial intercourse. It wavers, therefore, between a partial permission and a partial condemnation of priestly marriage. In the East, one marriage was always allowed to the clergy, and at first, even to bishops and celibacy was left optional. Yet, certain restrictions were early introduced, such as the prohibition of marriage after ordination, except in deacons and subdeacons, as well as of second marriage after baptism. The apostolic direction that a bishop should be the husband of one wife being taken as a prohibition of successive polygamy and at the same time as an allowance of one marriage besides second marriage, the marrying of a concubine, a widow, a harlot, a slave, and an actress was forbidden to the clergy. Um, And then it gave me three asterisks. The Western Church, starting from the perverted and almost manichean, um, ascetic principle that the married state is incompatible with clergy dignity and holiness instituted a vigorous effort at the end of the fourth century to make celibacy which had hitherto been left to the option of individuals the universal law of the priesthood thus placing itself in direct contradiction to the Levitical law which in parentheses plural marriage to which in other respects it made so much account of conforming Um, And I guess that's three more asterisks, Um, so a quote within a quote. The first prohibition of clerical marriage, which laid claim to universal ecclesiastical authority, at least in the West, proceeded in 385 from the Roman Church in the form of decretal letter of the bishop Syracus or Syracius to Himerius, Bishop of Tarragona in Spain, who had referred several questions of discipline to the Roman bishop for decision. It is significant of the connection between the celibacy of clergy and the interest of the hierarchy that the first properly propelled decree, which was issued in the tone of supreme authority, imposed such an unscriptural, unnatural, and morally dangerous restriction. End quote. Um, I bid volume three, page 242, 243, and 247. End quote. Um, so in the middle of all that was the next page, if you have anything that you wanted to add. What page is that? 111. Oh, okay. Um, I just wanted to say a couple things. Uh, so you talked about usury. That was forbidden in the Torah, and all that means is that you're not allowed to lend money to other uh, Israelites. Um, that's usury with uh, where you get it, you make money off of uh, interest on loans. Um, so that's what that means, and uh, it's the same thing with uh, with it's. Uh, with its definition in Catholicism, although the Catholics didn't believe that the Torah was applicable, where the Jews and I, I, I believe that the Torah was never done away with. Um, so the reference of baptism under death, the first break-off of the Catholic Church, they saw the sprinkling of you know, the sprinkling baptism is an abomination because baptism in Greek means to immerse fully, not just sprinkle. So they basically broke off from the Catholic Church 
and were doing water post-immersion baptisms. They were called the Anabaptists. And the Catholics, when they found out these people were doing this, they would execute them by baptizing them to death, basically drowning them. Um, bishops having one wife, uh, it's interesting that the Catholics know that that scripture exists, but the, the Baptist—I mean, the bishops in the Catholic or Catholic Church—they refuse to get married, which is direct contradiction of scripture. And that scripture was messed with. It actually meant that they had to be married. Deacons and bishops had to be married, not to one wife. So mess where they like to, you know, manipulate scripture in order to, um, you know, do what they want to do instead of what God wants to do. All right. That's all I had to say about all that. Okay. Thus, Christianity emerged from years of persecution into the role of a national religion. It had struggled through diverse troubles and inflictions, but with the church elevation, the poor, simple, devout disciple was lifted into executive offices of business and government. A new kind of man, proud and rich, with special privileges and immunities, replaced the humble disciple of previous years. It was a new church with new leaders, and it soon incorporated new doctrines and new laws. Um, it says dot, dot, dot. <laughs> the emperors enacted and enforced the observation of the ecclesiastical as well as of the civil law. Theodosius and Gratian define or ratify the definition of doctrines, declare and condemn heretics. Justinian is a kind of caliph of Christianity as at once in the authoritative tone and in the subjects which he comprehends under his decrees that he is a, a pope and an emperor. Um, and there's three asterisks here too, um, as if to separate it a little bit, I believe, but I'm not exactly sure why. Um, because I think it's when they do a quote within a quote. Um, the Emperor uh, Justinian, having now reunited the Eastern and Western empires, aspired to be the legislator of the world on Christendom and on the Roman Empire. According to his notions, or commend, commensurate, commensurate, Sorry, he would bestow a full, complete, indefeasible code of law. Is it what? No, it's commensurate. Oh, can, yeah, I, I'm like by the scales on I ten, our highway ten, so it's breaking yeah, up. Yes, so I'm a little bit, bit all breaking up. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Indefeasible code of law. Uh, end quote. That's the history of Latin Christianity by Henry A. Milman, uh, volume two, pages four through five. And in the middle of that quote was the next page. I don't know if you have anything to say because it's a relatively small section. But we're on page 112. Okay. In spite of all the rules and regulations against plural marriage, there seemed to be a continuous undercurrent of thinkers and writers who kept probing into the subject. Many prominent men, both in and out of the church, entered into that marriage system. Even some of the most recognized scholars of the Catholic Church wrote favorably of it. One such person was St. Jerome, 331 to 420 A.D. He was a student of Greek and Roman literature and became the literary secretary to Pope Donatus. Besides his many famous defensive letters in behalf of Christianity, 
His greatest work was translating the Bible into the Latin Vulgate, which became the Bible of Western Christendom until the Reformation. He ranks as one of the four doctors of the Latin Church. Oh, oops, I just touched it and it decided to um, reset. <laughs> um, Oceanus, a Roman nobleman, asked Rome to back him in a protest against Carterius, a Spanish bishop, who acted contrary to the rule that a bishop should be the husband of one wife. Because Carterius had married a second wife at this time in 397 AD, even if a first wife died and a man married a second wife, it was considered polygamy. Jerome defended the bishop rather than siding with Oceanus. This is uh, page 113. It's actually in the middle of uh, two paragraphs. These pages seem kind of tiny. Yeah, so like, you know, we see that the uh, Catholics thought that it was all right to just change things a little bit here and a little bit there. And it, they didn't have to stick to scripture or what God had said or Jesus or anybody else. They could just do whatever they wanted. That's how the apostasy happened, by small, small changes over time, which we can also see in our modern day. Okay. Are you all done? Yeah, um, I'm on horseshoe right now, so. Okay. Um, I don't know how so, well. So oh, I can hear you. Okay. Um, my um, thing just decided to go black. My screen did. So when I had to turn it back on and then, you know, all these electrical issues or something i don't know what happens okay so now i'm going back into where i just was <laughs> okay a spanish bishop named carterius old in years and in the priesthood has married two wives one before he was baptized and she having died another since he has possessed through the laver or laver and you are of opinion that he has violated the precept of the apostle who okay I'm still on the radio show, right? Because my phone just freaks out again. And now it, it, of course, because if you raise your head up to oppose the devil's kingdom, uh, he's just going to attack in every way that he can. And that's just the way it's always been. It's the way that it'll always be. But we'll get through it. It's weird. Okay, let me try again. This is the second time that it yeah, was black. It's so funny because, seconds. like, you never have any problems. You never have any I haven't, problems never, until you're fine. trying to do. Nope. Yeah, brand new phone. Not brand new, like a couple months old, but pretty nice. Nice yeah. phone. You know, no yeah. problems ever. And then, you know, there we go. So anyway, all right, I'll mute myself. <laughs> That's okay. Um, so back into the same thing, um, the husband of one wife. I am surprised that you have pillared an individual when the whole world filled with persons ordained in similar circumstances. I do not mean presbyters or clergy of a lower rank, but speak only of bishops whom, if I were to enumerate them all one by one, I should gather a sufficient number to surpass the crowd which attended the synod of Arminium. 
Um, that's Nassine and Post-Nassine Fathers, uh, Volume 6, page 142. The doctrine of the Catholic Church in those early days considered it plural marriage when anyone married for a second time, even if the second marriage was after the death of the first companion. However, even though it was a doctrine of the church, many priests and leading members did not consider it a sin. Jerome once stated, quote, when one thing is good and another thing is better, when that which is good has a different reward from that which is better, and when there are more rewards than one, then obviously there exists a diversity of gifts. The difference between marriage and virginity is as great as that between not doing evil and doing good, or to speak more favorably still, as that better or that between what is good and what is still better. Moreover, when he, Paul, goes on to compare monogamy with digamy, it says digamy, is that right? I guess that means a second legal marriage after the death or divorce of the first spouse. So that's what digamy is. First I've ever heard of that. He puts digamy after monogamy, just as before he subordinated marriage to virginity. Can anyone, moreover, be so unfair in his criticism of my poor treatise as to allege that I, or yeah, that I condemn first marriages when he reads my opinion on the second ones as follows? The apostle, it is true, this is, sorry, quote, the apostle, it is true, allows second marriages, but only to such as cannot contain lest when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they marry, having condemnation because they have rejected the first faith, and he makes this concession because many are turned aside after Satan, end quote. But it's not giving me where that quote came from. Having thus brought forward proofs that the second marriages are allowed by the apostle, we at once added the remarks which follow, quote, as marriage is permitted to virgins by reason of the danger of fornication and as what it in itself is not desirable is thus made excusable. So by reason of the same danger, widows are permitted to marry a second time, end quote. I mark my own view of these practices with the words, quote, all things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. I do not condemn digamous, nor yet trigamous, nor even to put an extreme case, octogamous. <laughs> Not to condemn is one thing, to commend is another. I may not praise it as meritus, end quote. That's Nicene and post-Nicene Fathers, volume 6, uh, page 70. Jerome said the church had protected men from sins of all kinds, yet they were worried about two lawful married wives. Jerome wrote, all fornication and er, contamination with open vice impiety towards God Parasite and incest, the change of the natural use of the sexes into that which is against nature, and all extraordinary lusts are washed away in the fountain of Christ. Can it be possible that the stains of marriage are indelible and indelible, and that harlotry is judged more leniently than honorable honorable wedlock? Uh, that's Ibid, page one forty three. End quote. Um, and that is you know what I means, right? It just means the same thing that I just said: Nicene and post-Nicene fathers. Yeah, and the yeah. quote that they didn't tell you where the quote was wasn't that Saint Jerome. Yeah, I think it was. It was just going in and out of him quoting and not quoting the same thing, and then it never left a 
Um, oh, okay. You know, it's probably Ogden, like, quoting him and then giving yeah. a little commentary like I do. Like, right, I'll yeah. be in the middle of a quote, and I'll be like, that's not right. <laughs> okay. Right. I'll mute myself. I think that's what it was. Um, Jerome continued by saying that the church made it more tolerable for a man to be like the Scots and the Atticotti and the people of Plato's Republic to have community of wives who were concubines or mistresses rather than wedded wives. That's also from the same thing, page 143, same exact quote, actually. He quoted the scripture indicating that marriage is honorable and that the bed undefiled and spoke of Paul, the apostle. Paul knew that the law allowed men to have children by several wives and was aware that the example of the patriarchs had made polygamy familiar to the people. Even the very priests might at their own discretion enjoy the same license. See Leviticus chapter 21 verses 7 through 14 and also um, that quote itself and what was just said is from the previous um, Niacin, page 144. Jerome concludes his remarks by saying, I will ask you the following question. Can a man who before his baptism has kept a concubine and after her death has received baptism and has taken a wife become a clergyman or not? You will answer me that he can because his first partner was a concubine and not a wife. What the apostle condemns then, it would seem, is not mere sexual intercourse, but marriage contracts and conjugal rights. Many persons will see because we see because of narrow circumstances, refuse to take upon them the burden of matrimony. Instead of taking wives, they live with their maidservants and bring up as their own the children which these bear to them. Be careful, therefore, not to interpret the words, the husband of one wife, that is, of one woman, is approving indiscriminate intercourse and condemning only contracts of marriage. That's also from the same... Um, uh, book, sorry, on page 145. So, um, Niacin. Yeah. So we can see how people that are not prophets and don't get any revelation, they interpret scripture according to their own thoughts and ideas, and they change things according to their own thoughts and ideas because they think, oh, this, this means this and this means that, but they don't get revelation. And they just do what they want to do. They don't seek to understand the truth by God and revelation, because they don't even believe prophets exist, even though the New Testament is full of um, prophets. You know, James 1.5, if you lack wisdom, ask God, and he will give it to you. Well, if he's speaking to you because you lack wisdom, that's what it means to be a prophet. Uh, and there's different levels of being prophets, but... When they're all like, well, it says here that the bishop should only have one wife, and that means that he should only ever have one wife his whole life, even if, if his wife dies. First of all, that was tampered with. Second of all, that's not what that means. And if you want to know what the truth of Scripture is, you can get revelation for yourself and confirmation of the Spirit. And then uh, Peter said, Scripture is not for private interpretation. That's because the interpretation belongs to God. And when individuals like Catholics, Catholics or Protestants or whoever, non-denominationally, 
Mormons, it doesn't matter. If they have an opinion and they teach it as doctrine and people just accept it, they are going to be teaching false doctrine, I guarantee it. You can have opinions. It's all right to talk about things that you believe and you're not sure about, but before you teach it as fact and before you start punishing people based on your thoughts and ideas, you might want to get revelation and confirmation of the Spirit um, you know, to make sure that you're in line with what God has meant. Because his interpretation is the only interpretation that matters. Anyway, I'll mute myself. Okay. So that was actually the perfect um, segue because now it's on page 116. <laughs> From these letters, it can be seen how strange doctrines were soon coming into the church, and many of them aimed at condemning anything close to polygamy. The problems in polygamy can easily be doubled or tripled over those of a person living monogamy. As a matter of fact, a man who lives plural marriage should be a philosopher with a sense of humor. St. Jerome gives a good example. Quote, Socrates had two wives, Xantippe and granddaughter of Aristides. They frequently quarreled, and he was accustomed to banter them for disagreeing about him. He, being the ugliest of men, was snub-nosed, bald-forehead, rough-haired, and bandy-legged. <laughs> he sounds amazing. At last, they planned an attack upon him, and having punished him severely and put him to flight, vexed him for a long time. On one occasion, when he opposed Xantippe, who from above was heaping abuse on, upon him, the termagant soused him with dirty water. But he only wiped his head and said, I knew that a shower must follow such thunder as that. End quote. That's Nicene and Post-Nicene Fathers, Volume 6, page 384. So, did you know that Socrates was a Hellenized Jew living in Greece? He sounds like your kind of guy. He's... Yeah, so he was influenced by the Greek culture, but he was a Jew. I didn't know that before, like, two weeks ago. I stumbled upon that, and I was like, what? I, I, I don't know. I thought it was pretty cool. But anyway, and in tour, it's perfectly legal to have two wives or more. Anyway, go ahead, Tim. Plural marriage had its difficulties at home and abroad, but its worst enemy was the Catholic Church. However, a few members, such as Jerome, ventured into the literary arena to justify the ancient prophets and their plural wives. Another was St. Aurelius Augustine, uh, 353 to 430 AD, who was one of the Christian fathers and wrote much on the history and doctrine of the early Christian church. His numerous letters, pamphlets, and books have been continuously published and are still available. He lived and died in poverty and began the Augustine Order of Monks, which Martin Luther joined over a thousand years later. It is said that if Augustine, Augustine had lived at the time of Luther, he would have been his colleague because much of what he wrote was not acceptable to the Catholic Church either. Um, this is page 117. Uh, uh, go ahead. Augustine was a left-handed author with a pen frequently found in his hand. He was considered a philosophical and theological genius of the first order, towering like a pyramid above his age. 
and a heart full of Christian love and humility, um, also from Niacine and Post-Niacine Fathers, uh, Volume 1, page 7. His work spanned nearly every subject, yet some observers say or said he was more a thinker than a scholar, which made his works more readable and influential. For years, he was a gifted student, eventually opening his own school near Rome, where his fame spread widely. He was chosen as a professor at the imperial court, where his conversion to the church was said to have been first intellectual, then moral, and finally religious. After joining the church, he became a bishop, a doctor of philosophy, and and in theology. He was considered to be the the missionary who brought Christianity to England. His numerous pamphlets and books on theology are still used as missionary works and stand as classics in the field of theology. With all of his insight and depth of study, Augustine saw no fault in the practice of plural marriage. He defended the polygamy of the ancient prophets and patriarchs, even though customs and laws during his time were opposed to it. Among his work was a treatise in defense of Abraham, which he wrote in a letter to Faustus, Faustus, a member of the Manichaeans, I think so, Manichaeans, an anti-Christian religious order, wrote to Augustine objecting to many things done by the ancient prophets, including plural marriage. Augustine responded by saying, You understand neither the symbols of the law nor the acts of the prophets, because you do not know what holiness or righteousness means. As if a deaf man seeing others move their lips and speaking were to find fault with the motion of the mouth, as needless and unsightly, or as if a blind man passing his hand over the surface of a wall and on coming to the windows were to cry out against them as flaws in the level, or were to suppose that the wall had fallen in. Thus, an irregulous pagan might bring the same reproaches against Christ in the gospel as Faustus brings against God in the Old Testament. So also the patriarchs and prophets, I will not be content with showing them to be superior to your ex to your elect, who keep all the precepts of Manichius or Manichius, but will prove their superiority to your God himself. First of all, then, not only the speech of these men, but their life also was prophetic. And the whole kingdom of the Hebrews was like a great prophet corresponding to the greatness of the person prophesied. So as regards those Hebrews who were made wise in heart by divine instruction, we may discover a prophecy of the coming of Christ and of the church, both in what they said and in what they did. And in the same is, and the same is true as regards to the divine procedure towards the whole nation as a body. For as the apostle says, all these things were our examples. Those who find fault with the prophets, accusing them of adultery, for instance, and actions which are above the comprehension are like those pagans who profanely charge Christ with folly or madness because he looked for fruit from a tree out of the season. Such critics are incapable of understanding that certain virtues and great minds resemble closely the vices of little minds, not in reality, but in appearance. Such resembles wisdom or the want of it in reference to the grand moral distinction between virtue and vice. End quote. Reply to Fossius and Minikian in Niacine and Post-Niacine Fathers. See volume 4, page 272 through 290. Um, last page. Ready? Yeah, go ahead. 
Augustine continued by saying that a man who obeys God, no matter what God requires, does not sin, which is in agreement with that what Joseph Smith testified when he said whatever God requires is right, no matter what it is. That's in teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. Augustine explained further, oh, teachings of prophet Joseph Smith, page 256. Sorry. Augustine explained further, sin then, any transgression in deed or word or desire of the eternal law. And the eternal law is divine or is the divine order or will of God, which requires the preservation of natural order and forbids the breach of it. A man, therefore, who acts in obedience to the faith which obeys God, restrains all mortal affections and keeps them within the natural limit, regulating his desires so as to put the higher before the lower. If there was no pleasure in what is unlawful, no one would sin. To sin is to indulge this pleasure instead of restraining it. And by unlawful is meant what is forbidden by the law in which order, the order of nature is preserved. Beasts do not sin, for their nature agrees with the eternal law from being subject to it without being in possession of it. And again, angels do not sin, because their heavenly nature is so in possession of the eternal law that God is the only object of its desire. And they obey his will without any experience of temptation. But man, whose life on earth is a trial on account of sin, subdues to himself what he has in common with beasts and subdues to God what he has in common with angels. Till, when righteousness is perfected and immortality attained, and immortality, sorry, immorality attained, he shall be raised from among beasts and ranked with angels. The exercise or indulgence of the bodily appetites is indeed to secure the continued existence and the invigoration of the individual, or the species of the appetites go beyond this, and carry the man no longer. Master of himself beyond the limits of temperance, they become unlawful and shameful lusts, which severe discipline must subdue. End quote. And now we are on Catholics Part 3, Chapter 11 of the Holy Priesthood, Volume 4, pages 120 to 130. Um, did you have anything to say? Uh, you don't have to go on if you don't want to. I know you've got other things you've got to do with family stuff. Um, what was the last quote was that Ogden talking about whatever or was that actually a quote from Joseph Smith or from somebody else it or? does not say the teaching of the prophet Joseph Smith page 256 was the last part of any quote okay, it's really weird so they the have like that... asterisks and different things but it doesn't really give quotes oh so it's interesting because um the whole comment about how angels don't sin is a yeah. little bit weird because uh, Lucifer was an archangel. He was a god. That's why he's called the god of this world. He fell, but he was an angel and he did sin. Uh, I think it's Isaiah that says that he was perfect in all of his ways except for iniquity was found within him. And that was his downfall. It was pride. He wanted to... So iniquity, all that means in Hebrew, is when you... When God has a plan and a purpose, he wants you to follow that plan and that purpose. And if you do not follow it and you go and do something else, and you depart from the plan and purpose of God, that's iniquity. So the LDS Church 
by not living plural celestial marriage or the United Orders or the Law of Adoption or the Gathering of Israel and all the other things that they have relegated to, oh, we don't have to worry about that. That, that is the very definition of iniquity under God's definition. So anyway, um, so I don't know. Um, I guess I don't really have anything more to say, but that was actually kind of perfect. Um, do you just want to do part three tomorrow then? Yeah, because I still haven't gotten the kids' stuff ready for school tomorrow. I haven't gotten any food or anything done. Um, I did have one of the kids here take a shower, but I've still got three left to go. (laughs) And um, the other two are not back yet. And, yeah, there's a lot of things to do. Yeah. um, So if anybody has any questions or comments, um, if I see that they have called in after the music, I'll go past the music and we'll um, address any questions or comments. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. And then if we don't see anybody asking anything or calling in, um, that's fine. But I'll end the program after the music plays. So let me just pull up the music here and make sure I have it. I'm actually okay, at Huntington Park. I'm at Hunter Power Plant in Castlebell with 42 tons of coal to deliver here. So that was actually perfect. From the mine to the, to the power plant's about an hour and 15 minutes. So that kind of worked out pretty good. So, all right. Um, yeah, just mute you. Don't hang up. And uh, I'm going to play the music. If we have any guest callers after the music, then um, then I'll, I'll bring them on the air. So, all right. If not, then everybody have a good night. Thank you for listening. And we'll try to be back on tomorrow at 8 p.m. for part three of Chapter 11 of Holy Priesthood, Volume 4, Catholics and Polygamy. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for reading, Kim. Okay. Here we go with the music. You're welcome. Thank you. 